Hi there, and welcome to Putting the Squid to Bed, a podcast about creative people and their craft. My name is Tim Lenko. I'm a writer and performer, and on this podcast, I interview creative people about why they create things and how they go about it. The show is named after an image that I have found so helpful. If you're anything like me, you know those moments when you've nearly finished a project, but then you find another touch you could add, another loose end to tie off, or another rough patch that needs ironing out. It's like trying to tuck a squid into bed. Just when you get two or three arms under the covers, another four or five have popped back out. Projects are rarely finished so much as they are surrendered. And that journey of discovery, creation, and surrender is what I ask my guests about. In case we haven't met, hi, my name is Tim, and I'm your host for this show. I'm very excited about this episode. Um, As an aspiring author myself, I am always thrilled when I get to talk to people who do the same thing, who have um, put together stories that grip my heart, capture my imagination, and then have found a successful way of actually sharing it with others who will care about it. Um, So my guest today holds degrees in archaeology, and anthropology, where he his studies focused on paleo-environments and human prehistory in North America. His newest novel, Extinction, is currently available from HarperCollins UK and Blackstone Publishing, and um, you can see the fingerprints of his education all over that story. Um, and The Man Has Range, his two previous novels, Imperfections from 2012 and Fishbowl from 2015 have been described as deliciously different while similarly satisfying. Um, He lives with his husband at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, enjoys snowshoeing and hiking, and spent many years working in the wilds of northern Alberta and Saskatchewan as an archaeologist. Despite having, and I'm excited to hear this story, despite having yearly bear awareness training and countless bear encounters, he once still managed to bear spray himself. I would like to you to welcome into your ears Bradley Summers. Bradley, welcome so much. Tim, thanks so much for the intro. That was fantastic. Yeah, and now it's uh, out there that I have managed to bear, bear spray okay, myself. Okay, so what happened? <laughs> well, that was uh, spent. So after I got my master's degree, I was able to to hold permits. So in Saskatchewan and Alberta, which is where you and I mm-hmm. live, and also uh, work and play, um, there's a set of legislation called Heritage Resource mm-hmm. Resources Act, and what that does is it uh, attempts to protect important sites of heritage uh, from development and all of this kind of stuff. So uh, I spent many years. Uh, 1997 on through about 2005, maybe even a bit longer than that, working up in, uh, in northern Alberta and Saskatchewan, because uh, there's a lot of oil sands development and all that kind of stuff. So being affiliated with that, we were to go out and, and hunt down uh, any, any archaeological sites that were considered to be of importance, of which there are many mm-hmm. up there. Uh, but of course, the place is is just it's home to tens of thousands of bears, and these are brown bears. They're the smaller smaller bear, but doesn't make them any more cuddly. <laughs> and so, uh, in this situation, we were uh, helicoptering around quite a bit, and uh, we would get dropped off in the morning, and we'd go and survey a bunch of areas looking for sites. 
and uh, get picked up in the evening. Well, about halfway through the day on this one, we were along a pretty steep ridge over a creek, and it was me and Amanda and Carmen, uh, two amazing people that I was working with quite intensively yeah. at the time. And we knew all the stuff to do with bears. Uh, you know, you make noise and you, you keep your eye out, you don't carry your food on you, all this kind of stuff. But, uh, but what was happening was there was an area that had recently been cleared uh, so there was a lot of disturbed habitat that was surrounding us. So there was a lot of displaced mm -hmm. bears. And one of them thought we were kind of interesting. So we were all talking on the edge of this ridge and we hear scratch, scratch, scratch. And uh, kind of look around and sure enough, about 10 meters, 30 feet away is mm -hmm. a brown bear. And he's up against a tree, scratching the trees, doing this territorial thing. So we start yelling and we get together and, and, and cluster together because that's what you're supposed to do. Banging our shovels and making tons of noise. Well, the bear decides that that's not enough to dissuade his interest. So he starts making his way towards us. So as he approaches, you, you know, suitably soil your pants and you pull out your bear spray. Yeah. And uh, the bear sprays have this trigger on the top of them. And uh, you have to pull a safety off, which is just a plastic wedge that keeps the trigger in place. So I pulled off the plastic wedge of mine, and it just detonated straight oh. up in my face. Had, it got a full-on face of bear spray, and I can tell you, it, it does hurt. I can see why a bear would run. So I had it in me to throw this detonating canister at the, at the bear, which, you know, looked at us and kind of went the other way. I couldn't see for about wow. 20 minutes, and... You're, the stuff that comes out of your face is just something else. So Amanda and Carmen dragged me down the hill to the creek, stuck my face in the creek for half an hour. We called the helicopter to come and pick us up. The uh, helicopter was in Fort McMurray, and the airport is on one side of town, and the pilot was on the other. So she's like, I'm going to speed to get there. I'm like, don't, we're fine. <laughs> just We don't need any more mayhem going on today. So uh, she came about, about an hour later. Uh, my skin was actually oh, steaming. And I don't know whether that's the propellant of the spray or what have you. So anyhow, got back to the hotel and uh, called it into our safety supervisor. She started oh. <laughs> laughing because it is a rather ridiculous thing. And it's like, that's a nice caring safety uh -huh. supervisor right there. So, uh, you know, everything was well and good. So we were getting ready to go out to dinner, uh, you know, later mm -hmm. that day. And you hop in the shower and sure enough, it's all in your eyebrows no. and your hair. So the, all of the capsicum just comes tearing down your face and you have the same event oh. all over again. It was just mayhem and stupidity all around. Right. It happens. It's a funny story in hindsight. I would never want to be bear sprayed again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And was it like a... But, so, yeah. And Was it like a burning sorry. or was it like a stabbing or a stinging? It was, it was indescribable, it. really. And I have yeah. a lot of words. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it's all of it all at once. Oh, my word. <laughs> so uh, part, part, of, part of it that I wasn't expecting is you can't really breathe huh. because your, your lungs and your nose are just trying yeah. to get all of this stuff out of you. So it's like, you know, like with, you know, the, the recent forest fires mm -hmm. that have been through, you have days where where you have air quality that's just so bad by the end of the day, it's like you just, you feel yep. so congested. It's that within 30 seconds, a hundredfold. Wow. Like it's, that was the most shocking thing. The pain hits a level and, you know, you kind of go, well, this is it. This is as painful as stuff yep. can get. 
<laughs> but the the inability to breathe for about you know clearly for about five minutes was something else. So, I can just so anyhow, if anybody is experiencing that, uh, work your way through it, wash your face, um, and uh, and wash away yeah, from your and, eyes. And I prefer don't exactly, and preferably don't yeah, do it. That makes so. a lot of sense. Well, <laughs> several different writers have been uh, credited with the the, the quip: uh, "You have to live in order to be able to write." And uh, uh-huh. all of this, everything that you've done up north, encountering the, uh, wildlife, experiencing this pain, has probably gone into your <laughs> into your writing. Well, into this book yeah. in particular, and it was funny because after I'd written Fishbowl, you know, somebody was saying, "Hey, you have all this background in archaeology yeah. and anthropology. Would you ever write a book about it?" And I was still working in the field yeah. at the time, just ending my career in that one, and uh, I said, "No, no. way." No, like you live it, you write reports all huh. winter, you, you're, you know, constantly yeah. immersed in it. But then given a span of five years, you look back at it and you go, oh, actually, there's a lot that I could pull out of there that will become relevant, you know, for whatever story I'm yeah. telling right now, which is like a lot of that does play into Extinction cool. as well. I so, so. enjoyed Extinction, yeah. I have to tell you. Yeah, anyone you. who's listening, I highly recommend going and picking it up. Um a bit of a warning if you care deeply about creatures, about animals and the environment, you will feel sad. Um, there is hope, but you will feel sad. Just just know that. <laughs> um, yep. Well, and all of that is... Uh, Extinction was written as a bit of a yeah. wake-up call, or at least an attempt to you know, throw my hat in the ring and have a, a little voice in the grander uh, discussion that that the, especially the Western world, but most of the world is having about um, our role in, in uh, you know, yeah. ecological and the ecological impacts that we're yeah. having. So. so I'm interested in, um, I want to return to exactly that question, like your art as a participation in this broader conversation, among other conversations. I'd like to go back further I'm interested in what actually first sparked your interest in putting words together to tell stories, to make something creative. Did this come up in your childhood? I, I know that your writing career started a little bit later after your, um, your other professional career. How did this all start as a child? And then how did you make the transition from uh, being an archaeologist to being an author? That's a... Deep in many yeah, I asked too big a question because <laughs> because you no that is an excellent question because it makes you sit and you have to think about okay what what is me romanticizing mm. that past and what is really that past and when you start going farther and farther back mm. into time uh, within yourself you start going like okay now is that me today you know interpreting what happened 20 years ago right because we know you're a good storyteller Uh, so you can go back and tell a good story about it if you want (laughs) yeah well and that's the thing is you got to kind of walk that line of you know what is this me interpreting what actually happened and what didn't um but to that point um like I, i have been writing short stories that have been getting published for since uh probably about the mid 1990s um and with that uh, even before, there was uh, a lady named Mrs. Buckingham. Mm. And actually, Imperfections is dedicated to Mrs. Mm. Buckingham. And she's, uh, she's a high school teacher. It was the first year of high school. And I remember her very clearly 
um, encouraging us to, you know, uh, pursue literary arts if you were so inclined. And she even went to the point where after school she would hold these extracurricular writing classes and, and just these, you know, gatherings for, for people who wanted yeah. to try this. Uh, so she was hugely influential, but even earlier back before that, um, and this, this is a, a practice I still carry on today, is, you know, bedtime happens, and then there's half an hour reading mm. before bed. And this is something my parents implemented mm. on both my brother and I. Uh, and, and thankfully so. It wasn't a trial at the time. Uh, you know, it was, it was not a big deal to, to turn off the TV and go upstairs and read for half an hour. Uh, it's something that my parents never, never denied, neither my brother yeah. nor myself, uh, is books. Like, you know, whenever we were out garage sailing in a bookstore, what have you, you were guaranteed if you picked up a book and had interest in it, it would be purchased cool. for you and it would be on your bookshelf. So, so with that, uh, the other thing too was they never came up after that half an hour mark and said, you have mm. to go to bed. If you were there mm-hmm. and you were reading, you could stay up. So, cool. So all that combined, I think, uh, you know, sparked my interest. But I think there's also something that's inherent in in people. And I think all mm. people, whether you notice it or not, is, is there is this inherent need in everybody for some form of creativity. And that doesn't have to be literary arts or painting or anything. It can be in business. It can be in medicine. But there, there's a certain drive within us that is looking for something completely different, a different way to look at things, a different way to yeah. do things. Um, and I think that's what lar- largely drives us as a species is that mm-hmm. innovation. So, uh, but I mean, you yourself um, have many artistic outlets from what I was reading up, I was doing a little oh. Google stalking on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, playwright, yeah. yes? Yes, I've, I've written a bunch of plays yeah. and uh, taught drama at a small school in northeastern Saskatchewan. Um, yeah. Excellent. And so what drives you with that? Like, so you, you know, and I understand that you write as well and you, you sing and you act. Yeah. Like it's, it's a little bit of everything yeah, for totally. me. So what, what drives that many faceted need for creation? Uh, I appreciate the question. And look at you turning the interview right around. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a, a, a host of things that drive that. One of them for me is, um, so, so performing live in theater or, or music without theater. Um, I love the experience that performers and audience can create together because it takes this, like, this mutual conspiracy of suspending disbelief in a space like we're going to we're going to sit back and we're going to enjoy something together that requires our imagination and our uh you know forgetting the four walls around us and that's an excellent and there's a thrill to that there's there's a connection in it that is so exciting and um and so as a craftsperson the idea of really honoring the because you get really a lot of goodwill in the first few minutes of anything whether it's a film or a play uh that you're putting together exactly you get a lot of goodwill from people um and so then to find the way to really connect with that goodwill honor it and deliver on the promise that is um implicit in the the initial connection point and and keep the goodwill going and reward people for actually connecting and, and giving of their time. It's just an, a fun challenge. And then to make people feel something The 
the one other thing that uh, um, th- th- that I love the the emotion that I really like to be able to elicit in uh, out of people is hope and the idea of grace um, because there's so much mess yep. and to be able to like in our lives all around us and to be able to inspire people that there's hope in grace um, to be able to look at the mess and then find connection and love and then keep going through that. That's, that's an exciting thing. That's an amazing and noble answer. And (laughs) thanks for sharing that. Like the thing, the thing that I look at with, and the only real, you know, artistic endeavor that I pursue is, is literary arts. Um, and, and you're entirely right. Like there's in the first, you know, the first chapter or so you have somebody who has, pick this up with a certain amount of interest in your work and they are busily going to try and lose themselves in the world that you created. And this is something that I think is kind of interesting. And I do have a question on performing because every time I step up on stage, I just feel sheer terror. I don't feel no joy (laughs) or thrill that connection, but thinking, thinking of it that way is kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's that's an excellent thing. But the other thing too that kind of baffles me still. So this is book three published. I've got like five sitting on the shelf that I've written that I haven't ventured yeah. out to actually see if they could find a home. There's a few that have and oh. been rejected. Um, but all of that thrown out there, the thing that always baffles me is we're making stuff up somebody is taking an interest in it they are recreating what you perceived and what you tried to put down on the page or on stage or Mm -hmm. in a song but then the next step is even more bizarre and i don't know like the words kind of fail because it's they create it themselves meaning a reader creates the book themselves so you kind of guide them and this i this i was kind of like tagged into in fishbowl uh, Fishbowl, I was doing a lot of touring that sold around the world. It was a, a wild book. Um, but every time I ran into somebody at an event, so you do a book reading, you do a festival, what have you, um, people would come up and want to talk about a certain aspect mm-hmm. of the book. And the majority of the time is it was not an aspect that <laughs> I had intended. Yet, in the same breath, it was entirely there yeah. in the book. And if you're if you're sitting there and listening and you know trying to engage with the person that's bringing you their story, what it is is they're bringing you their story that's been initiated by reading what I had written or you know what you had yep. put on stage or sung yep. what have you. And that's such a weird yeah. thing, you know, because especially with writing, it's you know everybody says you sit in a room and you know you don't shower <laughs> for months on end and you do nothing but drink scotch uh-huh. and you don't talk to anybody. And Part of that's true. You do have a lot of interactions. I do anyway with, with my fellow writers and all of this because, you know, it's very important, I think, to get feedback on the work as it's being developed. But then you put it out there and without any kind of feedback, it just goes out yeah. into this void. And that's where things like festivals and, and you know, this kind of thing, it's, it's, it's fascinating and fun because it's actually feedback on your creation, but it's your creation taken by somebody else and made theirs and it becomes this dialogue. It's just, it's the most bizarre thing. And I'd never expected that when I started. I hear you. I'm fully convinced that if a creator is telling the truth in whatever they are making insofar as they can suss out the truth, that it will go along with the grain of the universe 
in ways that they don't even notice. And so then other people will recognize right. the patterns that are just patterned onto the truth. And so, right? Think of that. <laughs> like, that's wild. Because the thing is, is what, what essentially, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but to paraphrase, it's what essentially you're saying is we all have this inherent meter in us to connect to yeah. somebody else on that level that is totally abstract. It's not, you know, two people sitting provinces away right. and talking on a computer. It's, it's this ephemeral kind of thing. And I, and just to cycle back to, you know, your, your answer on the response of yeah. an audience is, I guess in that situation, you have a relatively immediate response yeah. where in the writing world, you have to sit and you wait for years for it to get published and out there and distributed before you actually get to totally. that feedback. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And a crowd has a very different collective intelligence than an individual reader who then responds to a thing. Um, yeah, I would imagine. I don't know if you know Moss Hart. He was a Broadway producer. He, he was the one who um, created My Fair Lady with Rex Herring, Harrington and Julie Andrews okay. and, and Camelot and some others. And um, he would always stand at the back of the productions and listen for where the audience started coughing. Because if they had the time to be, if, if they were no longer so captivated that their, um, their baser instincts came, and they all started coughing together, he was like, okay, this is a weak spot. I've lost them all. And so then he'd rewrite. Yeah. Yeah. And equivalent to that, and I was reading, this is probably a year ago, it was, uh, I think it was in the New York Times movie reviewer was talking about their, their measure of, of, a movie is when do they start checking their watch or when do they yeah. become consciously aware yeah. of their surroundings? And then they were actually using that as like a, this is a 22 oh, minute yeah. movie, meaning after 22 minutes, they kind of dipped out of, of their suspension of disbelief and, and that carried on. That's interesting. And I think that's, that's, I think that's a good thing and a bad thing because what that does is yes, you know, you definitely have to know your audience, but in the same breath, you have to stay true to your so art. Much. So if you are doing something that, the audience does disconnect with I think treating an audience like a monolith is is wrong as well because it's going to connect in different ways with different people yeah. within that audience yeah so it's like uh you know if if a singular reviewer loses interest or or drops out a suspension of disbelief at 22 minutes that doesn't mean that no. you or I will no so and I think the onus there which this is an interesting thing too to me is uh, the onus falls on then the person viewing to carry the yeah. rest of the work. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a very new and very pervasive comment slash review culture. And we're all very busily reviewing our favorite restaurants and Tim yeah. Hortons and truck stations and what have you. Um, it falls a lot on somebody reading those reviews to kind of think through and go, that's that person's opinion, but does that truly reflect yeah. who I am? Yeah, it's a good question. In all your mm. experiences um, out and about connecting with readers, have there been comments from people who've really connected with you through your book that struck you, that you're so grateful for, that it was clear that they had just such goodwill and such gratitude and their words stuck with you? A hundred percent. And, uh, and essentially, you know, this is going to sound kind of like a dodge of an okay. answer, but I'll explain it. <laughs> Anybody who expresses yeah. themselves 
in any way in relation to a work that they've read. To me, that is amazing because it takes a lot of courage, first off. Uh, it shows that you have been thinking about, in my situation, what, what has been yeah. written. Um, and so the caveat on that is good or bad. Hmm. So hmm. like there's, there's some people who have, you know, been rather scathing towards certain works and yeah. all of this kind of yeah. stuff of mine. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that stuff too, um, because it doesn't just inform me about the work. It informs me about that mm-hmm. person as well. Uh, so, uh, imperfections, the very first festival I went to for that was in Seychelles. So it's on the West coast. It's a gorgeous little town on the sunshine coast. And it was myself and a, another author named Theodora Armstrong. She now teaches out at UBC. And we were the up and coming cool. voices. And we were being interviewed. And uh, it was a very interesting festival in that there was only one venue and it sat mm-hmm. 400 people. And it was consistently full. So as a, you know, a debut novelist, your, your most, most of your experience is going to be, you go out and you, you know, you have two people show up and you say, hi, mom and dad. And then you, you know, you present your work and off you go kind of thing. So to have 400 people on one of the first events you go to sitting there in this kind of outdoor amphitheater in the botanical gardens, like just mind blowing and also very spoiling. Cause oh, I yeah, expected it's gonna ruin that to you. be what the rest of totally. You'll never be happy again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're happy in the yes, memory yeah. of, so. <laughs> but anyhow, so the interviewer got on with Imperfections. So Imperfections is a story about beauty culture, mm. and it just follows a male model through their life, and it, it basically it questions what makes us happy. Uh, is it pursuit of, of physical beauty? Is it, uh, you know, spirituality? What have you? It, it just kind of pokes at everyone in a very satirical and very mm-hmm. dark way. Uh, and the interviewer... Uh, started harping on to me about uh, parental Mm. issues in front of 400 people. um, And, you know, love my mom and dad. They're wonderful people. um, But she was interpreting something different because of a piece of fiction that I I wrote. And to me, that was interesting because, A, it made me think, do I really have any latent (laughs) issues going on here I haven't addressed and dealt with? (laughs) You know, as I'm sitting in front of 400 people going like, okay, maybe we do need to talk about this. But the other side, too, is it did inform me about uh, about her experience. And, And again, like I'm not saying any of this flippantly. It was actually very interesting because we started talking about her experience then. Still there in front of those 400 people. And she... Okay. Yeah, and she had yeah. written about it as well. Yeah. She was very open about it, and you know, it was it was something that needed to be talked about. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't have come up that way. So, so again, like you know, having that kind of feedback is always fascinating because it not only teaches me about yeah. what I'm writing. Uh, you know, if if I get a hundred people uh, triggering triggering poorly on a certain bit, okay, yeah, I've done something wrong there. Um, but if I get these one offs, which they happen every festival, every event, if I get these one-off conversations, that actually gets to be really interesting because that's somebody that wants to talk about whatever happened to them. And again, that's trying to find that universal connection all the way through. And again, that's another thing that writing inspires as does, you know, uh, any kind of showmanship as well. So all fascinating stuff. Okay. Well, I want to ask about, um, something in, 
extinction. And I find myself curious whether it's something you see about yourself in it or if it's something that I see about myself and projecting onto you. Uh, ah. <laughs> towards the end of extinction, and I'll be vague for, for the sake of people who haven't read it and want to see it, but towards the end of extinction, Ben, the main character, um, uh, finds this piece of ancient art um, and then he interacts with it and adds to it. And as I, and so, so coming out of all of the, everything that happened throughout the rest of the book, I felt so sad. And then this quiet moment of him adding to this piece that he had found that was telling a story from so long ago, but overlapped with his own story that he had just lived through in the, in the recent days. Um, it, was such a picture of someone then finding a creative, expressive way to make sense of the world that they saw and connecting with the longer-term story of the world of which they are a part. And I was interested... Or, yeah, you're... you're you go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to say that is the most amazing synopsis of that scene without ruining yeah. any of the things that happened before. Yeah. Well oh, done. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I'm curious, uh, do you, did you write that cognizant of your activity as a storyteller participating in like trying to make sense of this world that you're a part of and this long, long story that you find yourself situated in? Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent, and so there's there's not a thing in extinction that uh, is not thought through. We can pick mm -hmm. out any of the minutia in there, and it's going to have more of a story to it. And this has also been part of the trouble with this book, I think, huh. because if you read it on the surface level, it has a thriller engine, like it is yes. just this plot driven, main, maniacal so action much. book. Um, but in the same breath, if you choose to dig a little deeper and read a little deeper. Every action, every little detail like that has a deeper meaning. So to talk about like the overall, and we can talk about a bit of nuts and bolts here mm -hmm. uh, as far as how this book actually works. And, yeah. and it's very funny. That particular scene, I put funny in air quotes, yeah. um, that particular scene, when I was going through the editorial process with the editor at uh, Harper Voyager, it came back to me. There's a version that came back to me and that entire scene was removed and I kind of, you, you lose it for a minute because you're like, hold on a second. Yeah. And so we scheduled a, a meeting and this was all edited during COVID. So the editor was in the UK and they had all fled London and they were in their estates on, on you know, the family farms kind of thing. So it was all kind of this weird disconnected editing on a television kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but when that one round of edits came back with that, scene that you had described removed to me I was like this book will not get published without that scene I will return all advances and scuttle this book if that scene is not there yeah but I gave my agent a heads up to that this might happen and she was like do what you do uh, <laughs> you know, she she's been amazing she's full that. faith in in the process great but anyhow there's there's several arcs that work through a story um so in extinction in any story if you are missing 
any of these arcs or these arcs don't come to a completion, your reader's intuitively going to sense something is off. And these arcs, one definitely is plot arc. What drives the story? Mm -hmm. uh, and even if it's a character-driven story, your plot becomes character and those characters have to move through what is the second part of this, which is the character arc. Your character has to change from beginning to end and it has to change. The character has to change meaningfully. Mm -hmm. The third one is a thematic arc. So you have to have an arc that carries through the entire story. What is the point of your story? And it has to have an answer. It doesn't have to be explicit, but it has to be something that your reader can interpret. And then there's also the other main one is an emotional arc. So mm -hmm. there has to be a certain kind of emotional journey for your reader to go through, which is usually the same journey your protagonist goes through, not necessarily, but yeah. most often falls into that. Yeah. So when the editor sent back uh, the version of this book of Extinction without that scene in it, exactly what you described is the end of the thematic arc. And he had entirely removed the end of the thematic arc. And if you imagine the story without that, it would just ring hollow and it would be oh, very yeah. much more just a plot driven page turning book that you leave on a train somewhere and you carry on with life and it doesn't resonate with you at all. And I think truly, if we're going to talk about how a story resonates with a person, the plot is the least likely thing to mm -hmm. resonate with a person. Mm -hmm. It's why you can go to an action movie that's just straight action and you forget about it. Or you read, you know, you know, you enjoy it while you're there. You have your popcorn. And then the next day you're like, yeah, that was fun. We'll carry on with life. But there's many stories that stick and resonate. And they come up again and again and again in your life. And uh, I, I find this all the time. I'm a ridiculously prolific reader. So all of a sudden I have these flashbacks of stories that I've read. Yeah. Um, but if you're to get any one of those arcs, you diminish the story. And so... With this particular scene, um, the entire novel takes place over the course of a couple days. Uh, through those couple days, the ranger Ben works his way through the entirety of prehistory, linearly. And the river is the thing that ties all that together. So in the very first scene, uh, Ben is trying to reach his fellow ranger Emma. And he's up on top of a mountain to try and get reception. And he's clicking through and having a lot of trouble. And Emma's somewhere out in this vast terrain. Uh, and she asks, he, he reaches her and she asks, uh, where are you? And he says, I'm up near Baby Mammoth. And Baby Mammoth is where, uh, you know, there was a couple hunters were hunting high alpine. And they, they found a baby mammoth um, melting out of a glacier. And at that point, he says... Uh, that baby mammoth was 13,000 years old, but also two years old. And it's like right there is a note on what's going to happen with your time. And then as you go through the story, Ben is traveling upriver to try and escape the poachers that are hunting his bear. Like that's not giving away anything there. Uh, but as he goes, you'll notice time progresses too, up until the very end, which takes you to modern time. And, and what's happening there subliminally and underneath the undercurrent there, the thematic undercurrent, is that human beings have always had an impact on our climate, ecology, and environment. And the very fact of existence causes an impact so the question is not, you know, how much carbon can we take out of the air to try and ameliorate global warming? The question is not, 
you know, how can we shut down fossil fuels and all switch to battery-driven technology, all this kind of stuff. The question is, how can we do that and everything else at the same time? Because to narrow down the current ecological discussion to a few molecules uh, defeats the purpose of a larger discussion that we're not having, um, which, again, there's points that come up through the book that kind of poke at that. So there's one point where we're, uh, in the cave there was a colony of bats, uh, brown yeah. bats, and the bats have all since disappeared. They got white nose fungus. And when I sent that off, this same editor said, that's a really neat idea. And I said, that actually happened about five years ago. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a lot that works in the book as well that, you know, you don't know if it's near future, but, or if it's actually happened yeah. and, you know, white nose fungus, it, it came in the mid nineties. It was uh, a couple brown bats from Europe where they've already, you know, um, the bat population has, has a resistance to this fungus. Uh, but a couple bats came on a boat. And they decided to disembark in New York. And, you know, within years, 98, 99% of the bat colonies in the eastern North America, the brown bats, the eastern North America, were winding up dead. And it's spread into the west. It's happening in Jasper region right now. Uh, and it will hit the other coast within a couple of years. And, and you're taking this, this population that had uh, basically no experience, um, you know, and this is, this is what COVID was too. We had no experience with this kind of disease. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're exposed to it. And there's no, there's no way to ameliorate the impact of that. Yet that, that flies through unawares. We're all unaware of that kind of thing. So, so you know, part of the gist, if it, if it even just nudges a few people to talk a bit outside uh, about what we're doing. And, and going back to the bats briefly, um, there's a great book uh, by a journalist, and the book is called The Sixth Extinction. And there's a very interesting chapter in there called New Pangaea. So Pangaea is when all the continents were put together as one. And they broke up, and they've been drifting for hundreds of millions of years. And we've had separate populations evolving and all this kind of stuff on each continental body. And what we've done in humanity in the last couple hundred years is we've reconnected them all through boat travel, through air travel, all of this. Uh, there's probably no continent more, more aware of this than Australia. Hmm. Um, but you have to think, okay, well, what has that done? Our existence has caused, caused this to happen. Mm -hmm. Is there any way to ameliorate the impacts of that? In that situation, it, it opens up a very uncomfortable conversation is that, yeah, there are things you can do to stop this or to limit this kind of impact, but they're gonna have a major impact on us as a species as well. So it's mm -hmm. kind of this trade that you're constantly doing. And I think that, that kind of more nuanced approach has been lost in just the loud volume of any yes. kind of ecological discussion we're having today. And, and to me, that's like the main thematical goal of of this book was to kind of point that out and just say, Hey, take a peek at this. Yeah. And in the same breath, you know, I hope it's a fantastic thrilling read that you, if yeah. you want to read it at the beach, by all means do it and leave it behind. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to think deeper on it, it's all in there. You just have to yeah. dig a bit. So. Absolutely. Yeah. The very best things can work on all those levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm interested you're able to 
work on so many different levels in this book. And you talked about so much thematic um, content that uh, is delivered subliminally. Um, I recently, I, my question is about subtext and subliminal delivery of, of content and how you engage with that question. Like how much do I need to serve up something obviously or leave it be bubbling under the surface? Um, part of this question comes from a recent experience where, so I, I wrote a short film with Jeremy Ratzlaff and Dustin Hulhati and um, cool. we just released it uh, this spring, and uh, I feel quite proud of it. And then l talking to some friends who saw it, uh, I felt quite sad because they left it very deeply sad, very discouraged, and they missed the um, the hope and the subtextual grace that that I'd uh, that we'd built into it. And I was like, okay, there's something here about being able to be attentive to what people are going to actually pick up. And so I'm interested in how you engage with that question of like turning the dial up or down on subtext and subliminal messaging. Um, how have you navigated that? First off, can we see this on your website? Where do we find this short? Uh, it is not publicly available yet. We want to take it on the festi oh, okay. festival circuit yet. Uh, uh, and then uh, after it's gone through the festivals, then, uh, yeah, we're going to make it publicly available. Okay. Thanks I have for to asking. keep an eye on the Calgary Film Festival, yeah. Um, yeah, so great question, and there's no answer to it. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's, there's in like, my opinion, this, that's all I can speak to is my experience and opinion on this kind of stuff. So um, I think think as time goes on, we are getting, as a, a readership, we're getting less and less able to dig deeper into yeah. fiction in particular for mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. We, we are reading things more superficially, and that's probably an entirely, you know, five-hour other conversation yeah. that we could have about, you know, why that is. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you were to not have that there you do diminish your work in that, you know, if, if there's a, a reader in particular or a viewer in this situation that wants to sit down and, and think more ponderously on all of this stuff that they, if they come up with nothing, then you've, you failed as well as, as the creator. Mm -hmm. Um, so I rely a lot on other people to give me feedback on that kind of stuff. So if I have beta readers for a novel or a story or, um, you know, just, just people who I, I used to be part of a critique group where we were very intensive, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, more recently, uh, you know, I have an agent who's editorial, so, you know, she reads it and gives me feedback. Likewise, I've gone and hired editors myself to kind of get that sense of what you're doing. Like, you know, you get to a point, you know how to put a story together, you know how to write a sentence, you mm -hmm. know how to how to do all that. But what you need help with, and I think it can really only come externally, what you need help with is trying to figure out that deeper level. But in the same breath, it's, you know, like we were talking about when we were talking about your audience response and the, you know, the 22 minute movie is you have to take into account that if you have five readers that's five opinions and you're going to hopefully yeah. have a thousand kind of thing. Uh, so if those five readers miss the point that you're trying to get across, yeah, I think you might've missed the point yourself in putting it in the work. Uh, if three out of three out of five hit the mark, 
to me, that's good numbers. Run with it kind of thing. Because the other thing that you always run run the risk of is writing too obviously or yeah. performing too obviously. And then it becomes hammy on both sides. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for nuance. And, and walking that line, you're never going to hit it right ever. Because hmm. I think part of it too is just acceptance of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, this is this is how it's going to be. Uh, I am going to miss the mark for some people and I'm going to hit the nail on the head for others. And uh, I think it's those people that you are are getting on the mark. Those are the people that you're working for. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, impossible to say. Well, and like even I, I think to, you know, say visual arts or performing arts, how would you know if you are overperforming a piece, if you are, you know, being hammy and melodramatic on a piece? And I think a lot of that comes from inside. But like you said originally, is a lot of that you have to gauge from your audience as well. You know, I think you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not, I'm not a performance artist, but you're probably constantly not just losing yourself in your role and trying not to forget your lines or your songs and all this kind of stuff. You're probably constantly checking in with your audience to see where they're at too. Or am I out to lunch on that? Oh, yeah. Um, th- that's definitely there, particularly in comedic uh pieces Ah, because the the feedback from them is is crucial if if there's not laughter it's not working so dramatic stuff it's 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 a little different um you're you're checking in in a different way and less less often um but yes there is attentiveness to like and you can feel a different like the way that an audience will respond will change like uh, what it calls out from within you as a performer Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I would imagine wa- there's a level, <laughs> I was going to say, I would imagine there's a level of panic that starts mounting if you're delivering a comedic oh, yeah. piece and nobody's laughing. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> At what point can I just walk off? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes the panic Funny. like inspires a bold choice and a bold something that uh, does or doesn't pay off and then <laughs> kind of pull it out of the fire. Yeah. Or the panic deepens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Oh, man. So I'm interested, um, all of these different things, like being able to get to the point where you send a book to beta readers, send a book to your agent who's going to give you a little bit of uh, support and feedback. All of this has to be preceded by a life that really supports rhythms of creativity and where you're actually putting your butt in the chair you're actually reading, you're actually nourishing your mind, and then you're actually putting words on the page. I'm interested in what you do uh, to support those rhythms and create that space for yourself. Yeah, that's a great question because it's going to, you can ask that every episode you do from here to a thousand and you're going to get a different kind of read on on it. Um, Like it's right now, this week is a very weird week because I actually did just send the new manuscript off to my agent. Congratulations. uh, You know, thank you, but we'll see. I always kind of run into that with a bit of hesitancy because it's that point. And this, I think is hilarious too. Like the the name of this podcast is, is spot on. Yeah. Because up until that point, you actually hit send. Yeah. You are still tucking little tentacles under the blanket. Oh Yeah. (laughs) It's maddening. And and by that, I don't mean you get angry. I mean, it drives you insane because Uh what you start doing is you start, I personally, I start spiraling in and becoming compulsive about certain things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, leading up to hitting the send button, 
up until I actually hit that button, I'm still questioning. And then for the week afterwards, I'm still questioning, was it done well enough to capture the agent's interest too? Because like I'm agented, that's the first kind of yep. person you have to work with and, you know, get them on board and all this. And if, if they're not, they'll tell you too. And you're back to the drawing board. Uh, and then once the agent's on board with every all the input that he or she has, then you know you have to act on those changes, and then it goes to publishers, and yeah. you send it out to whomever, and you go through that same process again, and then it goes to editors, same process again. Yeah. So it's this constant. Once you hit send, you're still again tentacles are popping out everywhere. Absolutely. Um, so for me, I all of this stuff I put down into process, and so. The creative part of things is you sit down and you write a book. And I, I swing wildly from just pantsing it, which means writing off the top of my head with absolutely no planning, uh, to being full-on planning. Like Extinction was planned to pretty much the sentence uh, before it was actually written. Yeah. Um, and you do get a much tighter, more structural book that way, but it can come across as a bit more clinical as well, which can also be a good thing. But... Uh, so anyhow, once that creative process is done, I truly believe that editing is when you actually start writing hmm. up until that point, you're making stuff up and putting it on a mm-hmm. page when you're editing. That's when you actually start deepening the meaning and pulling the meaning out and, and making the intent with which you wrote a lot more obvious to a reader, uh, because that's going to be your point that you're getting across. Uh, so I usually do. Manic writing, you know, I sit down at six in the morning, I'll write till 10 or noon. I usually do it by word counts. So if I'm getting 2,500 words a day, awesome. Yeah. And if I'm not, and it takes me till four in the afternoon to get that, it's button chair doing it until then. Like it's, it's a little bit masochistic because sometimes it's just not working and some days you write 10,000. So, um, but once that mess is on the page, First edit round for me is always unifying tenses. For whatever reason, I always write in all tenses all the time. Oh. <laughs> so it becomes structural. And what that yeah. does too, though, is it kind of re reseats me in the book. Because mm-hmm. when you're in the creative phase, you know, you don't know where you start really because you're ending six months later. So yeah. you have to go back and reacquaint yourself with the entirety of the work. So that's what that does. Uh, then first round of edits is the big stuff, like doing pulling the theme out in places where you can see it surfacing, but it's not quite breaking the surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's finding the pacing where the, the slow parts are, where the fast parts are, where you're going to exhaust your reader. Uh, so you fix all of that. Next round is, this is round three is always trying to make the language precise. Uh, so every word is thought of and you go, is this the right word for this place? Yes. Move on, move on, move on or change, change, change. And then the last one is I always have uh, certain words that I always spell wrong or I use too much (laughs) uh, or grammatical stuff, you know, it's with the apostrophe versus it's without all of that stuff, Uh, further, farther, what have you. So I just have a list that I keep from book to book and I just go through and I search every instance of that. And likewise with frequently used words. And then once that's done, usually there's a lot of hemming and hawing and, you know, thinking is it really done does it suck I don't know I'm too close to it and then you just hit it and send it off and you have to spend for me the next week decompressing going yeah it's done it's done it's done because yeah the the want is always there to pick it up and tweak it some more even with books that are published I still edit the books that are published so yeah 
<laughs> never quite done. You can republish the the director's cut, as it were, later on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you think of that, like Blade Runner has whatever, yeah. 30 or 50,000 cuts, and, and you can kind of see why. But in the end, if you know the story, does yeah. it really make a difference from one to the next? Uh, Apocalypse Now, Redux. Okay. Like the original was, was so much more concise and had more an impact, in my opinion. Mm. The rest of it, because they added another hour, hour and a half, I think. And from an archivist's point of view, it's interesting. But from a viewer's point of view, didn't add anything. Didn't add anything. In my opinion. But Yeah. But there's a million different takes on that, so. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so sense. you've written a piece a novel? Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. What, what have you found about the process? Are you yeah. at the end? <laughs> oh, gosh. I am at uh, an end. And I'm now... <laughs> so <laughs> Instead of writing the end at the very last page, you write an end. <laughs> that, oh, I like that. Um, I'm going to have to come up with a story that would end at an N end. Oh, and a person could do multiple chapters and there could be re- multiple ends back to back. That'd be great. There you go. There we go. See, and That's now you got to start writing that. As soon as we're done here, you're writing that. Oh, you better believe it. Thank you. This has been episode two. <laughs> no. Um, uh, yeah, I, I loved, I loved writing it. Um, I found that word counts, a daily word count was a helpful thing for me as well. And I was like, no matter what. And I, put my word count a little bit lower and found, so when I started out, I was like 250 words a day. It has to be just that. And then when I usually, when I was able to break the ice and make it through the first 250 words, then I was rolling and could write more, which was great. And then as I built up my internal stamina of like, all right, we keep going. Um, the new limit was 500 words a day. And, um, that really taught me that this whole thing is a skill and a practice that you have to really just like, you have to warm up to and, and get used to doing no matter how strong my imagination is. If my, um, my, my brain muscles aren't practiced at putting words together, then, um, it's going to be rougher. (laughs) Um, Yeah, for sure. So I just got to keep doing it. Um, the, after I finished the first draft, it was, it was, it was total crap. And I totally discarded it as a, a, just a document that was like field notes of like trying to discover what's here, what's possibly in this story that um, is worth sharing with other people. And then I turned to a second draft. I, I, I wrote a second draft from scratch that was focused on what I'd learned from the first draft. Like, okay, here's the actual story that people might actually like. And then mm-hmm. after doing exactly what you said about... Um, um, correcting the spelling, uh, picking better words, editing that, getting the tense all consistent. Um, uh, then I shared it with a couple of other readers and having them reflect on, um, certain inconsistencies of like, Oh, well, uh, you know, you had her leave the keys on the, the truck bed, but then you had her picking them up off of the truck seat, uh, yep. things like that. But then the, uh, continuity of the emotional story and the plot story and the thematic story was so helpful because you're right you end up too close to it and so being able to hear someone reflect on it was so valuable and so gratifying 
it yeah. made me um, super grateful and, and in a certain way, a little bit satisfied with like, okay, if no one ever reads this ever again, a few people I love have read this and appreciated it and engaged with it. There's something 100%. really rewarding and satisfying in that. I hope to 100%. share it with more, but this was, this was good. I liked this. The, uh, Second, so the first novel I wrote was going is going to sit on a shelf forever. Yeah. Um, the second one I wrote is has that feeling you're talking about. Uh-huh. Uh, it's that feeling of like this is something that I am very proud of. Yeah. And you know, again, it, a few people have read it, and and if it remains as that, to me, that's satisfying enough. Yeah. You know, and again, like, likewise, I, I hope it, eventually it finds the light of day, but it's a, it's a very personal piece and it's, mm-hmm. it's to me, it's just written in a very beautiful way. And I keep actually going back to it every year. So when you're writing in, you never, you never hit the top of your game. Yeah. It's constantly learning. Like it's, there's, I, I read, you know, how to write books one every every two or three months and if it's the most basic beginner's guide to writing I still find stuff that I'm either reminded of or I go hey that's a great idea use that next time kind of thing like it's this constant learning uh so with this this particular manuscript I keep going back to it every year and I just I I read through it I reacquaint myself with it I fall in love with it again and then I tweak it tweak it tweak it and and on and on and on and if it remains that and I get buried with it, that's, that's okay with me. Yeah. You know, it's just that satisfaction of actually having yeah. done it, I think. Yeah. So that's excellent. Yeah. So, uh, are you, are you submitting yours around? Is it at that point? Yes. I've, um, submitted, yeah, I've submitted it a few different places. And so, yeah, I'm at this, cool. p- the point where I'm like, okay, I need, um, an editor or an agent to give a, a, a new level of feedback. I don't think there's yeah. any more edits that need to happen until someone else can come in and um, help bring it to the next level. I think that's a very good place to approach it too, is that, you know, you, you know, it's not going to be how it will be published. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's at the point where, you know, you need that next level of, of professional eye to look at yeah. it. Cause it's, it's good to get even, even other writers to look at your work and all this kind of stuff and, and in-depth readers. Uh, but when it comes to the more business side of things, definitely agents and, and editors are required for that. So, yeah. So here's hoping. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's persistence as much as anything. Yep. You have to have something down on the page that's awesome. Yep. And then it's persistent, persistent, persistent. So, totally. Yep. That is the message I keep hearing. So we will persist. Do it. Yeah. Um, I am so interested. What is giving you life these days, Bradley? What is something that you're consuming or a practice that you have that you're doing that is feeding your creative soul? Scotch. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean a little bit, yeah. But but in the same breath again, it's this this kind of our timing here is struck at a very weird time because yeah. I have just, you know, overcome this 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 mountain of a of a work uh and sent it in. So I like for me, I usually wander around for a few days, just like in a daze, clean the house, you know, vacuum the place, all this kind of stuff. Just busy work. Yeah. Uh but what I've done, I was writing the one that I just submitted uh, at the same time I was as I was writing a second manuscript, and I'm about 120,000 words into that, which hmm. is about 
you know, one and a half times the length of extinction already. Yeah. Uh, so what I found very handy this time around, once that email was sent, is just diving right into this other work again, because it's a work that I'm very much in love with and enjoying as well. So it's just kind of, you hit this peak high, it's totally exhaustion, of course, you just climbed up the mountain, but then you look and it's like, oh, there's another peak over there. And you just kind of keep going because you get this momentum. Yeah. Um, so definitely that. Uh, when I'm in the editing phase of the whole process, I don't read a lot. I'm, you get tired of looking at words by the end of a day of looking at words. Yeah. So what I've done in the last week here is I've started to dive back into doing some major reading. So mm. I've got these door stoppers. There's a whole shelf behind me full of these books. And I've vowed this year to read just like those thousand plus page monstrosities that are just totally immersive. And, you know, you can just, you get in and yeah, it's like people were watching the Game of Thrones compulsively for years and years and years. It's kind of like that. You know, yeah. you get into it, you lose yourself in the book and you go. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. And that's kind of, you know, it becomes a self-perpetuating machine. You know, it, having read these and had that feeling of, of being immersed in the world, you want to go create that. So it kind of pushes you back to the keyboard, which, which is fun. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you're not having fun, there's no reason to do it then. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're finding fun. And the, Oh, yes. Have to. Yeah, truly. And returning to something that you love so much, like you, you talked about reading, uh, even as a kid. So that's great. I'm glad yeah. that that's re being recovered. It's very interesting to reread some works too. This is kind of, yeah. you know, ambling, ambling off on an aside. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm rereading Dune right now, which oh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a fantastic novel, but it's also interesting looking at it from our current sociopolitical perspective. Mm. Uh, just before that, I reread the Mosquito Coast. Um, so I remember reading that it's, so it's Paul Thoreau. Uh, it was a book written in the early eighties, early mid eighties. And Apple has recently made it into a mini series with Justin Thoreau. Who's, okay. uh, I think he's a nephew of okay. the author. Um, but anyhow, so I remember reading this book, Oh, I'm going to say I was probably like 15 or 16. And it was this amazing adventure story. It's about this brilliant, monomaniacal inventor dad and his kids and uh they you know they're they're basically the dad is very suspicious of anything governmental so they flee and they head to south america and they they trundle up river and they start their own colony in the jungle and all this kind of stuff and like reading that when i was 15 was just like ah this is an awesome adventure story mm -hmm. and then i started watching the apple series a couple years back last year maybe and uh it's quite different than I remember uh, the book. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go go revisit. Yes. And then this time I read the book. And as I am now older than when I read it originally, I found myself more intrigued by the dad's story. And the dad is a horrible, horrible, horrible person. Huh. Uh, like just, you know, toxic, toxic, toxic to no end. But also a genius, like very complex character. Like he's horrible to his family, which I didn't see on first reading. Yeah. I was too busy in the adventure story of it. Yeah. Uh, but he is just this perfect study of just a toxic genius man. And all of those things, you know, play out so complexly in his character and now I want to go read it again to see how that was done because it had that impact on me. And now I'm like, how the heck did that even happen? Totally. <laughs> you know, how did, how did I get that 
out of this. And again, that kind of cycles back to what we were chatting about earlier is that kind of this nebulous thing that happens when, when you're bringing your own experience to someone else's work as well. So absolutely. So I think that's going to be what, what drives the rest of this summer. Probably. That's awesome. Uh, We'll be revisiting works. So yeah, we'll enjoy that trip. Thank you. Yeah. Then thank you so much for this conversation today. I have so enjoyed this. This was a pleasure and it was awesome to get to know you a bit too. I mean, yeah. starting off on a new podcast, a new adventure, that's awesome. So it's good to, good to hear a bit about you as well, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for the rest of this learning curve. Awesome. Yeah, good stuff. definitely. Well, thank you all of you who have joined us today for the second episode and this, this fantastic episode with Bradley. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Timothy Lenko. Uh, Bradley, where can people find you online? I know you're on Instagram. Uh, yeah, Instagram, the Bradley Somer. Uh, and then also my author website is bradleysomer.com. So that's S-O-M as in Max E-R. Uh, and that's got all the latest goings on. So Excellent. And you guys can find Extinction, Imperfections, and Fishbowl anywhere that you uh, can buy books. And uh, join us in two weeks' time, and we're going to have another fantastic conversation with someone who is creative with their art. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Have a good one.